0: 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 9. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are, ju- that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God.
1: Good morning. All right. All right. Well, this is um, going to be our second lesson uh, on dealing with uh, conflict. Appreciate it. Um, the first one was... Um, what was the first one <laughs> the first one was on reconciliation y'all, y'all have to be patient with me today i'm going to try to be patient with me because this thing is still just these really gigantic delays um so uh we'll just have to deal with it so be reconciled that was last week we just basically took that um phrase from uh from jesus's statement in the sermon on the mount that um was uh, basically a command, be reconciled, first be reconciled, to try to emphasize the premium that the Lord places on reconciliation. Uh, it's not some peripheral thing to the Christian walk. It's, it lies at the heart of it. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul will actually say we're all involved in a ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian is a minister of reconciliation. You're trying to affect, like a broker almost, um, a reconciliation between humans and God and as a automatic um, corollary to that, between humans and humans, human group to human group, individual to individual, family member to family member, church member to church member, reconciliation is a, a large part of what we're involved in. So that was last week. Um, today we're going to talk about conflict resolution. Um, not so much, you know, uh, trying to map uh, modern concepts in the practice of psychology and psychi- uh, psychiatric care, where you might talk about, you know. Uh, mediation and arbitration, all these different things, because Paul really doesn't do that so much. Um, he really tries to change the way we think about it in the first place and change our hearts and give us a different vision. And you can see Paul working it out in different situations in different ways in terms of the particulars. We're not going to be talking about mechanics and procedures as much as just uh, the, the, the kind of vision that the kingdom should give us, because that's what this little series is about, dealing with conflict in the kingdom of heaven. And the fact is, conflict happens. Um, It's not something that is, uh, you know, an aberration, some anomaly that we occasionally hear about. It's kind of woven into the the warp and woof of the world, Uh, just part of being alive in this world. Cultures square off against each other, right? Um, Church members don't always see eye to eye. Uh, Dear friends can get crossways with each other on occasion, spouses who deeply love each other can get into arguments or as Sheree and I used to call them when our kids were around discussions, (laughs) right? If these things are allowed to fester, conflict can turn into enmity. Something that is intermittent or sporadic can become kind of the infrastructure of the relationship if we're not careful. So avoidance, conflict avoidance, which is one MO for a lot of people, That can actually be risky. We need to recognize that. That's not safer because you're you're delaying something and sometimes in the long run exacerbating something. So we need to be able to deal with it. Uh, James Baldwin once wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. True words. Fact is, conflict has pervaded this world since the fall, since the first primordial sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. It can stem from uh, overt evil. It can stem just from misunderstanding and miscommunication. But the fact remains, living in a world populated by the fallen and the finite, conflict will happen. That's our starting point. That's the Bible's starting point. Conflict will happen. Then what? That's our question. Then what? Well, enter Jesus of Nazareth and his Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of what we're using as our springboard for these lesson ideas in this little series on uh, conflict, handling conflict in the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount. So into this strife-torn world, Jesus speaks these words. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Anyway. Um, yeah, there we go. All right. Probably going to go three or four down now because you don't know, did I hit it or did I, you know, anyway, blessed are the peacemakers. This is Matthew 5, 9, one of the Beatitudes, sort of the, you know, the condensed statement of what kingdom ethics and kingdom living is about. He'll elaborate on that through the rest of chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven of the gospel of Matthew. But here's the statement, blessed are the peacemakers. And I want to say peace sounds good to everyone, right? Anybody hate peace? Um, no, in theory, we all love it. We sing songs about it. People who are my age may remember a song from elementary school. I don't know if you had it, um, but Shree had it. We were in, she was in Tennessee, and I was in Arkansas. We didn't know each other, not in the same school district or anything. But with this little song we sang in the fifth or sixth grade, Let There Be Peace on Earth. I mean, how many songs have been written about peace? It's a beautiful thing, and everybody on paper is committed to it. We all love peace. We believe in peace until someone disturbs our peace. But then how much do we believe in it? Right? It's like that healthier diet that you intend to start. It sounds good. You're committed to it until it's disturbed by that pint of Ben and Jerry's or that pizza commercial. In other words, my diet is great until I want to eat something that won't let me eat which is kind of <laughs> the opposite of it being on the diet. So you're not really committed if when it comes down to it, you throw it out the window because it's not comfortable. I think that's, a, that's the commitment of a lot of people to peace. Peace is great as long as it's on their terms and there's no conflict. But if somebody disturbs your peace, how do you respond? Once conflict uh, threatens to, uh, to disrupt peace, how do we respond? And so we're gonna look at how we respond this morning. Um, first of all, the way the world responds. Thanks. Um, and uh, the way of the world, you know, the conventional response to conflict hasn't changed much since the days of the Sermon on the Mount. And basically it's this, it is to mirror the response of my adversary. That's kind of the worldly way, the conventional, the normal way of responding to conflict. I'll just mirror you know, what my adversary did to me. Maybe I'll be more sophisticated. Maybe I'll resp- retaliate, you know, with more intensity or it'll be more subtle or it'll be packaged to where it looks like I'm not guilty. You know, we can get sophisticated with it, but basically it's tit for tat. Uh, my adversary does this and I, might, I have a mirror reaction. And the only difference is my behavior feels more righteous mainly because it's my behavior. They think theirs is righteous. They're in the right because theirs is... Their behavior. It's not really much more sophisticated than that. But here, here's what the Sermon on the Mount says. There are three full paragraphs in Matthew chapter 5 that are explicitly devoted to rejecting this usual typical worldly reaction to conflict. We looked at one of these last week, and that is Matthew 5:21 to 26. We're not going to read all these again. These are those you have heard that it was said. Here's your religious tradition, here's what your elders, your scribes in the past have this how they interpreted Torah. But I say to you, it's different. And my giving, my, my uh, saying is the true one. It's the ultimate fulfillment of, that, of what that was talking about. So everyone who is angry with his brother, you can see this highlighted in, cha- in chapter 5, verse 22. Um, that, that's a problem. It's not just when it eventuates in murder. It's being angry to that level. And so you need to go reconcile with your brother. Jesus basically says, don't be like the world. Don't just give in to your anger because it will ultimately... Only solidify your estrangement. It'll deepen and intensify the alienation and the conflict. In uh, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, he says, basically, when someone hurts you, don't respond in kind. Flat out, don't do that. Uh, don't retaliate. That's what this paragraph's about. You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, and he basically says, don't do that about 15 different ways there in the rest of the paragraph. Um, In chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, a third paragraph about, about conflict, he says, You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, do otherwise. Don't, you know, when a persecutor persecutes you, when you have an enemy, don't succumb to hating them. That's what the world does routinely. They dehumanize the other. They... Uh, in, in a thousand different ways, we're, we're really good as human beings at otherizing people, if I can make up a verb. Somebody's different from me. They're a little threatening. They don't sound like they got the same exact worldview. Half of it may be in my imagination. Half of it may be based on fact. Maybe they've wronged me, or at least I perceive them to have wronged me. And whether it's another individual or another people group, we are really good at sort of honoring that lizard brain impulse to otherize you're different from me. You know, you're, you're, you're other. There's no reconciliation. It's the opposite of that. It's estrangement. And we can make that permanent pretty quick and make it part of our own identity. You know, if you don't think what I think about the other, you're not one of us. That kind of thing. It's this us-them thinking that is so human and so worldly. This is not coming from the kingdom of heaven, that logic. And yet it's something that we are all... Uh, tempted to do. We have a a kind of inborn tendency, I would argue, uh, to do that. But Jesus gives us a new story and a new way of wiring ourselves according to the logic of his kingdom, which emanates from his cross. And what we need to understand is that if we do those things, we're imitating the worldly response to the conflict. Notice that he says, this way is basically the way of tax collectors and Gentiles. There you go. Um, verse 46 of chapter 5, if you just love those who love you, right? what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, people who are not other, but your brother, if that's the only person you're kind to and have a greeting for, what more are you doing than others out in the world? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? The nations, the ethnics, everybody. So in other words, the pagans do that, The the rankest sinner in the world. Tax collectors were the bottom of the barrel from the Jewish perspective. Well, they're nice to people who are nice to them. So if that's your logic about how to handle conflict, I'll be good to people who are good to me. And if not, look out. Welcome to the pagan worldview. That's just the world 101 is what that is. And we need to just say that. We don't need to play games like that's Christian somehow. And yet this way of the world is often deployed by religious people. It doesn't make it any less worldly just because churchy people do it. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said X, but I say it's Y, who's he talking to here? Remember, he is addressing their traditional religious circles. It turns out the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness is not so righteous. He's talking about religious people who have this kind of approach to conflict. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, remember he says this. We saw it last week. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's nothing special. There's nothing holy, we might say, about being nice to people who are nice to you. That's not unique. You know, there's honor among thieves. I mean, that's not holy, not different. It's just the way of the world. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of uh, Edward. Um, uh, I think it's uh, Kazarian is how he, I'm not not sure how he pronounces the name, but that's what it looks like. Um, I've been reading through this book over the last couple of weeks. It's a really it's a dissertation. You can tell by the way it reads, just straight up, you know, analysis. It's uh, in case he's watching, very good analysis not super riveting. Um, the, the genre is not, you know. Mine wasn't either. I mean, it's like it's a sleep aid, basically, unless you're into this topic. But when you're into it, and I have been for the purposes, it's really well done. It's just super exhaustive. And what he basically does in this book, as the title suggests, is he, he surveys, like all the way back from to Homer, you know, 1000 BC or something, a, a Greek thought in, in, in Greek philosophical writings, uh, Greek mythology, uh, Greek history. Um, he, he looks at how Greeks thought about peace and peacemaking, and then how the Roman Empire, who pretty much inherited much of the culture of, of, of Hellenistic uh, life, uh, adopts some of the same thing. And he talks about you know Virgil and uh, Cicero and Roman thinkers as well. And, uh, and then he contrasts that with the writings of Paul on the topic of peace and peacemaking. And basically what he says is that the Greeks and the Romans saw conflict as the normal state of being. All right, Conflict was the norm. Peace was the aberration. In fact, they often saw violence as the means to bring about peace. And they had a lot of writings on that. So just a couple of examples that you you can find in his book, and some of these you might have heard of before. Aristotle wrote, we make war that we might live in peace. Try to map that on top of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek and all that, loving your enemies. We make war so that we may live in peace. Or a more famous one, you know, the the Romans went around the world taking their Pax Romana to the world, the peace of Rome. We're going to bring peace, you know, well-being. But as the people they subjugated often noted, there was a huge irony in your bringing peace to us at the point of a sword crucifying tens of thousands of people to bring them under the Roman dominion so that you could have peace. I mean, if you have to kill everybody, if your way of peace, they might cause conflict. Well, wipe them out then we'll have peace. Isn't that pretty much kind of world history? Um, There was once an invasion, an imminent invasion of the British Isles. Uh, I forget which Roman general was crossing the English Channel from France, from Gaul, as they called it, to invade uh, Britain. When the Celts lived there, and this Celtic chief, chieftain by the name of Calgacus, in a speech to his own troops, getting ready to try to repel the, these, these hordes of, of, of you know, just incredible warriors, the, the Romans were. And here's what he says plunder, butcher, stealing, these things the Romans misname empire, they make a desolation and call it peace. This method, resolving conflict with more conflict, did not die with antiquity. Think about the English word pacify. The verb to pacify literally means to make peace, right? The Pacific Ocean is supposed to be real peaceful. I kind of wonder, what parts do they sail across? There's, there's a lot of... It can get storms too, <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, but to pacify something means to make peace you know so anybody here have a binky what greg does he's take it out no i'm just kidding it's under his mask so a pacifier right is a baby's crying there's conflict you know there's angst and so you give them the pacifier to to cause peace i find it really interesting that in the 19th century in the so-called indian wars um The word pacify was often used for massacres perpetrated on Native American people. The Lakota Sioux were being pacified. He doesn't mean they're having problems fighting with each other. We're going to go in and be negotiators. No, what they mean is we're going to go make war on them. Think, you know, General Custer and uh, the the Lakota people. Uh, In fact, when they're killing them, they were often using a cult, 45, I don't know what the caliber was. I think it had a lot of different calibers. Colt revolver that was called the Peacemaker. How ironic is that? So basically, this is the methodology of we have conflict, we need to resolve it. So we're going to resolve conflict with more conflict. We're not interested in the world history geopolitical stuff right now. Those are just illustrations. What I'm interested in is you and, and, and me, you and I, and how we resolve, how we respond to conflicts among ourselves, whether it's in your home or in this church or among your friends, our relationships with people out in the community. What does that look like? Does our personal or in our personal conflicts, how often does our peacemaking resemble more conflict? And we have to come to see this hostile approach to conflict resolution for what it is. It is the logic, the logic of the fallen mind. This does not come from God. God. This has not come from King Jesus. This comes from the logic that emanated from the fall. And I'll give you an example of this. You remember in Genesis, uh, we read that Adam and Eve have these two children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then you get this sort of the descendants of Cain, the trajectory of Cain in chapter 4. Cain is, is marked and you know, sort of banished, and there's a mark on him, and he's worried he's going to be annihilated by people. And God says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to still be with you. If anybody you know, does wrong to you, I'm going to avenge you. You sevenfold, and then we get this random uh, statement about a fellow named Lamech, a descendant of Cain, in Genesis four. Help me out there, Nick. Thank you. And I want to read this because I think these aren't just throwaway things. You know, there's parts of Genesis you just read, I'm not sure what that's about. It seems like a tangent. Genesis, in many ways, is sort of telling us how the world came to be the way it is, and what God's doing in it. And you can read some of these early chapters and go, That is how that is. Whether you're reading about the relationship between you know Adam and Eve, a husband and wife. And how it's beautiful, but there's some angst in there, potentially. You know, a lot of it's sort of ambiguous, but beautifully ambiguous because it's resonant in a lot of areas that way. This is a statement that I've often found interesting. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah. The name of the other was Zillah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. This might be the first poem in the Bible you know what it's a poem about? Revenge. How many times have we sung this same song? Over and over and over and over. I'm going to settle the score. Here's what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I am going to do perfect revenge. That'll solve things. That's the way of the world. Notice that if that's how we think, whether it's subtle or overt, whether it's on a small, you know, to a small degree or a large degree, whether we're using, you know, uh, you know, sort of boisterous anger or we're stonewalling, same thing. That's still vengeful. There's a thousand ways to be vengeful. When we're doing that. We need to know and and man up and say, what I am doing right now is honoring this impulse that comes out of fallen humanity, not transformed humanity. I'm going way back to the the post, you know, east of Eden. That's where I am. Just call it that. That's what it is. That's the way of the world. All right, let's talk now about the way of the kingdom. Nick is pulling off a, a minor miracle, but he's actually advancing. He's doing my slideshow perfectly, by the way. Thank you. The way of the kingdom. All right, so the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to counter this logic of the world and to counter it with the logic of the kingdom. This is why he says, you have heard that it was said, you know, revenge, retaliation, uh, uh, entrenched estrangement rather than reconciliation, hating the people who you've deemed other, who are your enemies instead of loving, all of that. That's what you hear even from your religious leaders. But I say, three times, Matthew 5.22, 5.39, 5.44, we find this contrast. That's the whole point. So when conflict arises, Jesus says, don't let anger keep you apart. Don't otherize the person that you're maybe going to be estranged from. Instead, reconcile and do so quickly. Don't try to even the score. Return good for evil. Don't hate your enemies. Love and bless them. And those are hard things to do. Those are very countercultural. We're not taught that in, our, in the world around us. Nobody is. Um, they seem to go against our, our human nature in many ways. The ability to do these <clears throat> really countercultural things begins, as the sermon itself begins, with being poor in spirit. I think it's really, really profound and interesting that the very first statement, and, and, and therefore arguably the bedrock truth of this constitution of kingdom living, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is that, God, that Jesus wants people who are poor in spirit. So this is just the beginning of the sermon here in Matthew 5.1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went upon the mountain, and, he went, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. I'm going to talk to you about a kingdom, my kingdom, and I'm going to tell you the kind of people that populate it. It's not the people who are spiritually confident, who've got all the answers. Never met a question they didn't know the answer to. And if anybody has to weigh about it or study about it for more than about 13 minutes, they're nervous as all get out. No, these people know that they don't know. They know they don't even know what they don't know, right? They're poor in spirit, not rich in spirit. And when I'm poor in spirit, only then am I able to detach myself from this fleshly assumptions, this, all of these fleshly assumptions, um, which so confidently feel in my gut to be common sense and just normal, just the way it is. If I'm poor in spirit, I'm, I, I know that I could be wrong. And so I open myself up to the kingdom way. I'm not going to do that if I'm rich in spirit. I already know what I, what, how everything works. But if I'm poor in spirit, I can open myself up. And we begin to recognize that our model for responding to conflict will not be the world, and it will not even be the religious world. But it will be God our Father. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We just have to decide, do I want to be a child of my Father in heaven or do I want to be a child of Lamech? You know, do I just want to go the conventional way of the world? And later we find Paul echoing the kingdom priority of conflict resolution rather than conflict intensification um, for instance, when the Corinthian church, which was close to being divided, it was divided in many ways, members, in, in fact, are suing one another in pagan civil courts. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which was part of the reading a minute ago. And Paul says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So one of the problems here, Paul says, is they were relying on unbelieving judges to decide their you know, to, to help adjudicate their, their problems with each other, their conflicts. And these unbelieving judges don't even subscribe to the values of the kingdom. Who knows what kind of answer you'll get if they have a whole different worldview. They may say, yeah, you need to split up. You're not happy anymore? Just split up. If you're this way and they're that way, just split up. I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of options if you're going to have unbelieving... If we're subscribing to the truths of the kingdom and the character of a king then it kind of matters who we're bringing these things before. And so that's one of the problems. But he says there's another problem. Just the fact that they have these lawsuits, the inherent problem of that you, 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 you seem to be more interested in getting what you want than getting along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says that's already a defeat. Verse 7, it's a moral failing. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a de- defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? What? What on earth? Suffer wrong? But I'm not wrong. That, that was Jesus... How did he go to the cross? What was his status? Right? Did he suffer? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, instead of you taking some wrong and being defrauded like Jesus did on the cross, you're the ones who are perpetrators. You're wronging and defrauding by taking this thing all the way up to, sip, to pagan courts rather than... First, be reconciled. And if you need somebody to help you, get somebody who agrees with the principles of the kingdom. And this approach to conflict conflict uh, resolution was, Paul says, unrighteous. Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit, here it is, the kingdom. This is kingdom logic. This is the kingdom way. And he says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if that's the way uh, you roll here. So my point is this. It's very, very easy to talk about how much we love peace and how much we hate conflict. It's very easy to say you're committed to peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. Amen, Jesus. But it's just like that song I sang in the sixth grade. Let there be peace on earth. Anybody remember the next line? Let it begin with moi. Not you. If you'll get your stuff together, we can have peace. That's where we often go and Jesus says that's, that's the exact opposite. Let it begin with me. All right, I want to talk now finally about where these two respective paths lead. The trajectory, the end point. What can we expect if we commit ourselves to the way of the world? What can we expect if we commit ourselves to the way of the kingdom when it comes to responding to conflict, to strife? Now, of course, all who embrace the world's way say that they're simply being realistic, right? I bet some of you felt an urge a minute ago when I was saying some of those things. I bet you do every time you read Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. You know, don't hate them. Love them. Pray for them. Pray for the people who despitefully use you. I bet a lot of us are going, well, maybe in church. But then we don't even do that in church half the time. And so the people who subscribe to the way of the world, of course they're going to say something like you know, self, self-justifying, like, well, I'm just being realistic. Turning the other cheek, after all, seems like so much naivete. Playing hardball is, is the only thing some folks understand, they might reason, as if Jesus doesn't understand the world better than I do. He made it. Well, I love my enemies, but if they punch me, I'm going to punch them back only thing some people understand, the only thing that works. Let's unpack that last statement for a minute. Does does it actually work? Does it though? Well, the only thing that works, does it work? The only reason it seems like it works is because our perspective is, is so myopic. We're thinking of the next transaction, you know, the next volley, the next interchange. We're not thinking three or four, five, six, seven down the road. Our perspective's too short. Problem is we live down the road. That's gonna be here five seconds from now. And a lot of our lives are so complicated and conflict ridden because we've handled so many past ones that way. And now we're just, you know, it's this snowball going down a hill and we're in it. Gathering momentum. Does it work? to employ the way of the world to resolve conflict. When from an urge to set things straight, we hit back. Now, that could be physical, it could be verbal, it could be, we could be hitting back passive aggressively. There's a thousand ways to hit back. Don't let yourself off the hook by going, well, I don't hit people. I don't yell. Anger has many manifestations. If you hit back in whatever form, do you forget that you've just given the other person justification in their mind to hit you back again? Because they didn't think they were wrong. Almost by definition when there's a conflict, both sides think they're right, right? And then it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And the ultimate result is this spiral of vengeance. fueled by each side's certainty regarding the righteousness of their cause and the rightness of their interpretation. It just spins further and further out of control, widening its path of destruction like a Cat 5 hurricane. And notice it's called a spiral of vengeance by, by theologians, not a cycle of vengeance. What's the difference? Anybody? What's that? Yeah, and doesn't a spiral with each successive ring get bigger? That's what a spiral is. So, remember what Lamech says. I have killed a man for wounding me. He nicked my knee, so I cut his head off. That's what happens with it. If you look at these age-old conflicts, they just get more and more. I'm talking husband and wife. I'm talking friend and friend who are estranged. I'm talking nation and nation, culture and culture. That's how it goes. It's a spiral of vengeance. How well does that work when you're the one inside the, you know, being being battered by that hurricane? This is why Jesus says, Don't imagine that stewing in your anger and refusing to reconcile will actually work. You're hurting yourself. It's going to bring all sorts of unforeseen consequences. That's why he has this little statement, I think, in verse 25. After saying, first be reconciled. He says this in verse 25 of Matthew 5, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Like settle it before you even get there, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. In other words, all kinds of bad things are going to happen if you don't reconcile quickly that you didn't anticipate. And he says, look, you're not going to get out till you paid the last penny. Or Paul in Galatians 5. Remember all the, the fighting in, in, in the churches of Galatia over Judaizing teaching and those kinds of things? Here's one of the things Paul says in Galatians 5. He says a lot of theological stuff about the, the jurisdiction of the law and so on. But he also says this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Galatians 5.13. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Like, this is where it will go. Every time. That's the the end point of the, the MO of the world when it comes to conflict and handling conflict. And moreover, when we assume the mantle, when we as human beings assume the mantle, the role of vengeance, we are usurping God's role. That never was our role. For now, God's patient love brings His rain on the just and the unjust, His sunshine on the good and the bad. For now. That just shows how gracious God is. But the Scriptures also tell us that one day, He will avenge all the impenitent injustice and oppression ever committed against all of those people made in His image. A lot of passages teach us this. Romans 12 is among them. Paul says, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Echoing Jesus' statement, blessed are the peacemakers. But then he says this, verse 19. Because this is really the foil, you know. This is the opposite choice from peacemaking. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Again, subtly, overtly, don't play that game. Any kind. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to, the, to me. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. So, a consummate, you know, kind of ultimate reckoning is coming. God is not blind to the suffering. He is not deaf to the cries of the people who are being crushed by their oppressors throughout the ages. That doesn't mean we have license to take up God's role. And trusting in this divine vindication enables you and I to practice the way of the kingdom. It enables us, empowers us to refuse the us versus them mentality or the you versus me mentality that that fleshly thinking invariably produces. I mentioned last week the Croatian-American theologian named Miroslav Volf. In his book, um, Exclusion and Embrace, and, and, and Wolf has called the way of the kingdom the way of embrace. Picture embracing somebody that you were at odds with. Rather than the typical worldly way of exclusion. That's where the title comes from. And he knows what he's talking about. As I said last week, he, he witnessed the destruction and genocide of his native Croatia at the hands of the Serbs in the 1990s in the Yugoslav Wars, which killed more people in Europe than any conflict since World War II. Some 150,000 souls killed. Many more raped. Cities leveled. He witnessed all that. His homeland. Miroslav Wolf, could have succumbed to anger, right? How many of us would? He could have otherized his oppressors. All Serbs are this way. Serbs are nasty, Serbs are dangerous. Little Johnny or Vlad, whoever, I don't know their Slavic names, but you know, Ivan, whatever, don't go talk to his kind. He could have done all that. He could have demanded retaliation against them. And instead he called for embrace. Wow, how's that possible? Let me share with you what he says about this. And you'll notice that what he says that makes it possible is trusting in the vengeance of God. The ultimate vindication by a just God. And that's why he's able to swear off violence and retaliation and call everybody to do that. And he's gone through way more than most of us can even read about, honestly. Here's what he says. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative. Either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. In other words, God would never do any of that. He says, ironically, that, that's what makes us need to do violence because we've got a sense of justice. He says, my thesis in this book, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West here. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have, first, have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. This all really happened. If you had a TV in the 90s, you'll remember all this. The topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Here's what he says. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. In other words, if we don't believe in divine vindication someday, what are we left with? It's only in trusting that, the end of the story, that we're freed from trying to take over God's role and freed to live this radical peacemaking ethic out that is part and parcel of the kingdom to which Jesus clearly and repeatedly calls us. Our way through conflict, whether it's with an individual or a whole bunch of people, is the embrace of the kingdom. It's to leave the business of vindication to the God of justice. We're to follow Jesus, who so fervently sought the reconciliation of His enemies, which, by the way, is you and I, and the bible says that over and over we're literally called enemy same word of god so christ's enemies were us but he so wanted reconciliation with us that he absorbed our evil against him rather than avenging it so we'll close with 1 peter 2 20 through 22 if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god for to you or for to this you have been called You have been called to that Suffering for wrong. That's our calling. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Think about that. The next time we have an urge to strike out or respond in kind or turn a cold shoulder or say, good enough, I'm done with so-and-so, right? Or to sign up for the tribal warfare that just is 24-7 on our screens. Think about these things. They're all over the place in the Bible. The kingdom way should be our way. Thanks a lot.